Let's turn to Acts chapter 1. I'm going to look at verses 12 to 14 today. And in particular, I want to look at prayer from verse 14. Prayer is when we express our dependence upon the Lord. And I want to look at what prayer has to do with the purpose of God today in the book of Acts. Let's first hear the word of the Lord, starting in in verse 12. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And we pray together. Father, your word is good. It is perfect and true. And it has authority over us. And we want to submit ourselves to that authority because this authority is right. And it belongs to you who created us and who have saved us. So help us listen to it as such. And give us grace to follow it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So verses 12 to 14 will be our focus. And uh, these verses do several things. Uh, Verse 12, uh, to start with, tells us that the apostles returned to Jerusalem. And if you remember from last week, verse 4, uh, in verse 4, Jesus uh, had ordered the disciples not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. And here we see them obeying that word. They return to Jerusalem. Uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 53, says uh, that when they they returned, they did so with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. So this is... Glad-hearted obedience, and it's full of praise. Verse uh, verse 13, then, introduces us to 11 apostles in particular. Uh, These are the same apostles that Jesus chose in Luke chapter 6. Same names, Jesus you remember Jesus stays up all night praying, and then he, the next morning, chooses the twelve. Here, though, there's only eleven. And the one missing is Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus and killed himself. And that sets up the rest of chapter 1, where Jesus restores the twelve with this fellow named Matthias. We will uh, we'll look at that more closely next week. 
And then something else is that verse 14 introduces us to the women. Luke is particularly observant of how women were involved in the mission of Jesus. Uh, in Luke chapter 8, of, so this is Luke's gospel. Uh, so this Luke's gospel, remember, is part one of uh, the book of Acts. And uh, Luke, in his gospel, in chapter 8, verses 2 to 3, he, he notes some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Uh, he named some of them Mary, called Magdalene, and Joanna, the wife of uh, Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, it says, who provided for them out of their means. So Jesus and the disciples were going about their, their mission, and there's this group of women providing for them, playing a very significant role in this mission. Uh, with the other Gospels, uh, Luke also notes that the women were the first to see Jesus' resurrected body. That's Luke 24. Then we get into the book of Acts. Uh, we see this reference here. We see in chapter 2 that daughters and female servants get the Holy Spirit as much as the sons and the male servants. Uh, in Acts 9, he notes this, this uh, sister named Tabitha, who was a woman full of good works and acts of charity. In Acts 21, Priscilla, alongside her husband, helps explain to Apollos the way of God more accurately. All along the way, uh, Luke is drawing attention to these women uh, who are playing a significant role in the mission of Jesus. And, th- and that's pretty huge considering on when this was written. Uh, in the first century, women were not even eligible to testify in a Jewish court of law. Josephus said that, that even the witness of multiple women was not acceptable because of the levity and boldness of their sex. Andreas Kostenberger goes on to write, This background matters because it's a theological reminder that the kingdom of the Messiah turns the system of the world on its head. And into this culture, Jesus radically affirmed the full dignity of women and the vital value of their witness. That's a really good point. And I also hope it serves to encourage you sisters in the faith Your part in the mission of the risen Jesus is valuable. Yes, men and women have their complementary roles in the mission, but never should we miss the Bible's testimony about how women served in such significant ways. Uh, Philippians 4.2, for example, Paul says, "There There were these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, who labored side by side with him in the gospel. So God has entrusted... You with the gospel too, sisters. And there are some really great opportunities right now in our society for you to advance that gospel and for you to picture that gospel. And brothers, let's also honor them as co-laborers in the gospel. But there's one more item that stands out in verses 12 to 14. And I want, to be, I, want, I want that to be our focus for the remainder of our time. Verse 14 says that all these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. Last week we saw that the, the risen Jesus and the, the worldwide mission of the church, they go together. They are inseparable. He ascends to heaven. He sends the Spirit we go out, we preach, 
We ask the world, do you know our king? Have you heard of his victory? But there's something crucial we cannot miss. The the place of prayer in Jesus' mission. Part of our going involves waiting and asking. Part of our preaching involves pleading with God. Verse 14 leads us to a place of prayer. Uh, The prayer falls right between Jesus's. You have Jesus' commission on the one side, and on the other side you have the completion of the twelve and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And prayer is right in the middle, point being Jesus' mission through the church and Jesus' gift upon the church comes through the prayers of the church. Our focus will be prayer and the purpose of God in Acts. And the first thing I want us to see is that prayer is motivated by the power and the promise of the risen Jesus. Prayer is motivated by the power and promise of the risen Jesus. The disciples are praying in verse 14 because of who Jesus is. In verses 9 to 11, the disciples, what happens? They they witness Jesus ascending into heaven in a a cloud. and, And we saw last week from chapter 2, verse 33, where Jesus went. In chapter 2, verse 33 of Acts, it says that he is exalted at the right hand of God. He's in the place of authority. So Jesus has taken the heavenly throne. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is powerful. So chapter 2, if you want to flip one page over to chapter 2, and I'll continue reading in verse 34... This is after he says that Jesus is exalted at the right hand of God. Verse 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So in the Old Testament, the way a king showed his victory is he put his foot on the neck of his enemies. Proving his authority and his sovereignty over the ones he has defeated. So rebellious kings and nations, rebellious angels and heavenly authority, they're they're all being put beneath the feet of Jesus right now since he is exalted at God's right hand. One by one they're being put there. Hebrews 2.14 said he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Paul says death is the last enemy to be put under the feet of Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. So Jesus is powerful to replace all rebel kingdoms with his own kingdom. Jesus is also powerful to save his people from their rebellion. Uh, there are a few places. Uh, one, of, one of them is uh, Acts 26, verse 18, where, where Paul is giving his, his testimony uh, when he met the risen Jesus. He had the risen Jesus saying this to Paul, and he tells Paul, I am sending you out. I'm sending you out to the Gentiles. And this is what I'm going to do through you, Paul, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. 
So you get this picture of, of the risen Jesus storming the gates of the enemy, taking his turf and rescuing people one by one, snatching them out of the do- dominion of Satan and bringing them into the kingdom of light. And you see this, for example, in Acts 16, verse 14, as the apostles are pre- uh, teaching, and, the, and it says, the Lord, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. This is what he has done for us, brothers and sisters. He has transferred us, he has broken the chains of our sin, and he has transferred us out of the dominion of Satan and brought us into the kingdom of light. Jesus' power to defeat his enemies and save all his people is why we pray. I mean, we don't have the power to change the heart. We don't have the power to replace the world's kingdoms with Jesus' kingdom, but he, but he does. Missions is ultimately the work of the risen Jesus. And so, we ask Jesus, the King, to do it. Because we can't. We can, we can pray extraordinary prayers because our prayers rise to an extraordinary King. We can pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Lord, your kingdom come because the king has taken the throne. Perhaps your prayer life has taken a nosedive and it needs revitalization. Perhaps you've grown weary in your praying. Perhaps you're like me on on occasion. I pray it doesn't go the way I want. It doesn't come when I want it. And so you're tempted just to skip it and get to work. It's what America does, right? We produce something. Get out of the prayer closet and go do something. Produce. You ain't bringing the kingdom of God in that way. You don't have the power. Yes, we work hard. Yes, we preach the gospel. Yes, we go out and serve. But we do not bring the kingdom. God does. And we must ask Him to do it. Who are we kidding To skip prayer. To skip asking the king to take the kingdom. We have no power to advance the gospel. No power to break down Satan's strongholds. No power to say no even to our own sin. No power to change hearts. But Christ does. He'll change the world one day into a cosmic sanctuary of wholeness and glory. He has the power. And that should give us great confidence to pray. Something else we we can bring together here is that prayer is also built on the promise of the risen Christ. Uh, What did did Jesus promise the disciples? You stay in the city. because He promised to send them the Spirit, which is referred to as the promise of the Father. Jesus promises to give them the Holy Spirit after returning to glory with the Father. And it seems that that promise motivates the disciples to start praying. And one, the reason I, I say that is because the Holy Spirit, if you read Luke and Acts together, the Holy Spirit often comes in response to the prayer. Uh, 
So, for example, in Luke chapter 3, this is at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus after he prays. And then in Luke chapter 11, uh, as Jesus is teaching the disciples about prayer, he says, if, hey, if you, who are evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So again, asking and the Spirit there, are, gifts of the Spirit are connected. And that continues in the book of Acts. And in Acts 1-4, the disciples are to wait in Jerusalem. They pray here. And in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. Same thing happens in Acts chapter 8 with the Samaritans. They hadn't received the Spirit. They come and pray. The Holy Spirit comes. So I'm putting those together and saying that one of the reasons they're praying is because Jesus has promised to do something, to send the Spirit. So prayer is built on the promises of the risen Christ. And it's very interesting. You see this in multiple places. One of the clearest instances in uh, the Old Testament is in 2 Samuel 7, uh, verses 26 and 27. Uh, David is praying. And I want you to hear this. He says, Your name, O Lord, will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, so what's the promise? I will build you a house, David. And what does David say? Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Where does courage in our prayer life come from? It comes from knowing the promises of God. What has he said he's going to do? So we should build our prayer life around the promises of the risen Christ. So if Jesus says, I will be with you, even to the end of the age. What do we we pray? Lord, Go with me today. I ain't going out there. I'm not going to work today. I can't bring you glory at work unless you go with me. Come with me. Or 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. That's a promise. So we pray, Lord, you are faithful. And you promise to give strength to overcome this temptation. Give it to me now that I might escape. Or, Revelation, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And we pray, Lord, come soon. Wipe away these tears. Give us hope until you return. So you've got to fill our minds with the Bible. Open the Bible and you'll have plenty of blood-bought promises to, to pray for the omnipotent king to do. In your life and in the world. You see, presidents can make promises. My own children listen to the inaugural address. Listening to these promises. They're like, he can't really do that, can he? No, he can't. You know, just worldly rulers can make promises. And many of them do. But none of them have the supreme authority to make them happen. None of them have the infinite power to ensure that all their promises get done. The risen Jesus does. What he promises for the world, he has the power to accomplish infallibly.
And he chooses to do it through your prayers. Which leads me to draw out a second point here. I want us to see that, that in the book of Acts, prayer is the means by which the risen Christ achieves his saving purpose. So I'm kind of giving you a framework here, a big picture view on how to... Because as we go through the book of Acts, I want you to see this. All these prayers are fitting into this right here. Prayer is the means by which the risen Christ achieves his saving purpose. Uh, One thing to notice, first, is that the church's prayers in Acts, they parallel Jesus' prayers in the gospel. So Jesus prays in Luke 3 to receive the Spirit. And the apostles are praying and they receive the Spirit. Jesus prays to appoint the disciples in Luke 6, and the apostles pray to appoint Matthias in Acts 1. Jesus prays from the, from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And what do we find on the lips of Stephen when he is being martyred? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So you see this, these similarities between Jesus' prayers and the church's prayers. And the point is that the prayers of Jesus, what he valued, what he wanted, what he longed for, what he asked the Father to do, they become the prayers of the church. We see in the church's prayers the spirit of Jesus behind them. Which should also leave us amazed once again at how sufficient the death of Christ truly is for us. We're coming to the Lord's Supper again to remember God's past deliverance in Christ. I mean, and think of this just for a minute... Jesus has unbroken access to the Father as Son. And as man, he has, he has no sin separating him from the Father. His requests are always right on cue because his heart is to do the Father's will only all the time. The Father listens to him. We, on the other hand, have no access to the Father in our sin. Isaiah 59, 2 says that that sin so separates people from God that he hides his face from us and he does not hear us. Yet the pattern in moving from Luke to Acts is that those in Christ have the same access to the Father that God's only Son had. How is that possible? The cross. The cross. We can relate to the Father as Jesus the Son related to His Father, because in Christ, God counts us as forgiven sons and daughters. That's what happens when you place your faith in Jesus. Jesus cried, Abba. What do we see in the New Testament? What do we see in the letters? The church is crying, Abba. John 16 says that in that day, Jesus Jesus telling his disciples, in that day you will ask in my name. And I, and I do not say that, that to you that, that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So the sufficiency of Jesus' death gives us access to God the Father But then notice how God uses that access, how He uses that that praying, that communion 
we share with the Father. How, how does God use it to achieve Jesus' mission through the church? Verse 14 is the opening example in Acts. And then it just starts snowballing. I'm just going to give you a taste. So you get to the end of chapter 1, verse 24. And they pray to restore the twelve, and God answers by appointing Matthias. Uh, The Lord adds 3,000 to the church in chapter 2. Next thing we see is the church praying. And it says that God adds to their number day by day. Acts chapter 4, the church faces opposition. They cry out. And, and they ask God to look upon their threats and to grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And guess what? God answers their prayer and they go out and they continue speaking the word of God with all boldness. In, in Acts chapter 6, the apostles have to devote themselves to prayer for the word to advance. Get these men, these seven men appointed church and they appoint these men through prayer. And guess what? The word of God continues to increase. In Acts chapter 8, the apostles pray for the Holy Spirit to fall on the Samaritans. God answers by filling them with the Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, the whole deal with Peter's vision and Cornelius' vision. They get together and we learn, hey, the gospel and all of its blessings are for the Gentiles too. That whole deal comes as a direct result of both Peter and Cornelius praying. In Acts 13, big turning point. Proactive mission to the Gentiles begins. The Holy Spirit sets apart Paul and Barnabas. And it says, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And what do you know when they come back, they're reporting all the wonderful things that God is doing among the Gentiles. Paul plants churches, it says, in Acts 14, when they had appointed elders for them in every church. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You get the pattern. Luke is painting a picture of the risen Jesus advancing his kingdom on earth, and one of the primary means he uses is prayer. Yes, we go out. Yes, we work hard, but not without God. Prayer is the means by which the risen Christ achieves his purpose. God is sovereign, he's not dependent on our praying. But he has chosen to inspire the prayers of his people to advance his purpose. He ordains the ends as well as the means. The end is that, if you're a farmer, the end is that you want a crop. But you got to plant and you got to have rain. So those are the means. Jesus' kingdom is coming. One of the means... Getting that kingdom here is prayer. And God ordains both of them. Everything about the mission of the early church is bathed in prayer. The Lord guides His people in prayer. He gives the Holy Spirit and boldness as a result of prayer. He extends the church's reach through prayer and establishes churches in God's grace through prayer. Prayer isn't a mere add-on to the Christian life. There is no such thing as prayerless Christianity. If the Spirit is truly in here, you know what's coming out here? Abba. Every day. Abba. All the time. 
Prayer is how God chooses to work out His purposes through our express dependence on Him. We get the privilege, this amazing privilege, sinners though we are, to interact with God and His saving purposes. Don't you want Jesus' rule to transform the earth? Don't you want, don't you long to see His glory covering the earth as the waters cover the sea? We looked at this a while back, we looked at this before, but in Revelation 8, John has this vision of all of our prayers filling heaven's censer. And one day God will will take all the prayers of the saints on earth and and He will pour out that censer. He pours out that censer on on the earth. Meaning the, the future state will finally come on earth through the prayers of His people. And I just want to say to us, let's fill the censer. Let's fill it up with our prayers. What are we waiting for? What do we really want in life? Our problem with prayer isn't that we're just undisciplined, but that we're disinterested in true glory. We're too easily pleased with the world and have dulled our senses to the pleasures of God. Pleasures we can enjoy now, in part, and fully in eternity Third, prayer comes in the context of obedience, unity, and perseverance. Prayer comes in the context of obedience, unity, and perseverance. The apostles, as we said earlier, obey Jesus while they're praying. He ordered them to stay in the city and to wait, and they do it. And as we saw, they do it gladly, blessing God. You can imagine, I mean, them... They've been with a risen Christ for 40 days. And you get to the end of the 40 days, you're like, all right, let's do this. We've got it mapped out here. Let's go. Wait. Not the best church planning strategy, Jesus. What are you doing? He says, wait. They trust him. They wait. They pray. The Bible makes obedience a big deal in our praying. Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Uh, 1 John 3, 22. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. It's not to say that, that we, you know, you've got to get yourself in this state of perfection in order for God to hear you. No, one of the prayers we pray that Jesus taught us to pray is, Father, forgive us for our sins. But it does mean that we pray, that when we're praying, we pray in order to align our will with His. If He's the risen and exalted Lord, who are we to do things our own way? Luke also makes note of their unity in prayer. All these with one accord, or... Some of your translation might have with one mind or one purpose. 
were devoting themselves to prayer. Uh, The same idea appears in Romans 15, verse 6, uh, but in the context of glorifying God with one voice together. So it's not so much that everybody is saying the exact same thing, but that everybody's contribution is in harmony, is in harmony with Christ and His purposes and His glory. They agree in prayer with each other. You do know when we say, Amen, that just doesn't mean the end. I'm done praying now. That's not what that means. Amen is saying, yes, I agree, Lord. Make it so we're one in this request. So how do we become a church united in our request? Well, we have to come together for starters. So there are contexts in which we are already gathering, and I'd say take every advantage of those Sunday mornings, care groups. Wes and Stephanie host a prayer meeting the first Sunday of every month up here in the Fellowship Hall. There's one tonight, 6 o'clock. Is that right, 6 o'clock? But there's got to be more than just getting together. We must actually grow to love what the risen Jesus loves. And to love what the risen Jesus is doing in the world. Our unity in prayer will only extend so far as we're loving and committing ourselves to the glory and the purpose of the risen Jesus. The closer, the closer that all of our requests are moving towards Him, the more united we will be in prayer. We have to really want His kingdom to come and not our own kingdoms to come. Christianity isn't merely doing things together, but loving one Lord together. And finally, we see that that prayer comes also in the context of perseverance. They were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Paul says in Romans 12, 12, to be constant in prayer. Same language. The basic Christian life is one that's continually devoted to prayer. As we, as we move through the book of Acts, you're going to find different kinds of prayers. There's, there's individual prayer. Peter and Cornelius did by themselves at first. There's lots of corporate prayer. Them gathering together to pray in homes. Uh, you'll find formal times of prayer. Some of them are going up to the temple here and there at certain hours of the day, the time of prayer. And there are spontaneous prayers. Hey, Peter's in prison. Let's get together and pray. And Paul's in prison with Silas, and they're praying. The point is that it characterized all of life, all of the church's life. It wasn't relegated to a thing you do once in the morning. It was constant dependence, constant beseeching the Lord, Um, I'm sure some of you do this. I mean, just one word, Father. Father, I need you. Father, help me. All day long. Jesus taught his disciples this, didn't he? And we see it in, in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8, he tells them a parable to the effect. It says that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. 
So he said, in, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What are we seeing here? We're getting a picture of faith. What does faith do? It cries day and night. It cries day and night, meaning all the time. Faith knows that, that, that even unjust judges care for a widow. How much more will the just God care for his elect? We ought always to pray and not lose heart until the Son of Man comes. Somebody once asked Tim Keller, why do you think young Christian adults struggle most deeply with God as a personal reality in their lives? And he answered, noise and distraction. It's easier to tweet than to pray. And he's right, we're often distracted. But the distraction is a choice. We choose to distract ourselves with news feeds and Facebook and ESPN and entertainment, and that's ultimately a heart issue. Distraction wouldn't be the case if we truly saw our need for prayer. If a doctor said, give yourself this injection every night, and if you don't, you'll be dead by morning, you would never miss. You wouldn't make excuses like, I was too tired. I didn't leave enough time. I got too busy. Not if your life depends on it. You make it happen at all costs because you see your need. Distraction wouldn't be the case if we truly knew our need and we truly knew our God who makes himself available in prayer. Prayer lives won't persist as long as your self-confidence runs high. In his book, A Praying Life, Paul Miller writes, you don't need self-discipline to pray continuously. You just need to be poor in spirit. So how would you characterize our church? How would you characterize your own walk with Christ? Would you say that we're a people marked by prayer? Marked by devotion to prayer? Oh, I want us to be. Some of you are. Some of us aren't. What is it that we really want as a church? Is it God's presence? Is it God's kingdom? Is it for the Lord to do mighty things through you now for his, for his sake and for your joy? 
We're going to take the Lord's Supper in a minute, but first I want us to pray together as a church. Let's go ahead and use this time before the Lord's Supper to pray. And as a first step, let's start by asking the Lord to open our eyes to the power of the risen Jesus. Make that a prayer. And then also pray that that the Lord would help us treasure His promises deep within. And that those promises would become our daily food. And then ask the Lord to to make us hunger for Him, that we would see prayer not as a box to, to tick off, but as a privilege to participate all day long, whatever we're doing. So let's break into groups of four or five. If you're not a Christian, don't feel pressure to participate here. And in fact, if, if you're a Redeemer member and you notice that, I would like you to bail out on your group and go sit down with that individual and have a, a conversation um, with them about the Lord and why they're here. So, And as soon as we're done, Dale's going to come lead the supper.